This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, a hundred years ago, from this moment when we are recording this, the assassination of Michael Collins took place in Cork, a place called Bailnabla. It was and remains one of the most celebrated commemorations. Every year there is a speech at Bailnabla, and for the first time yesterday, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, the Fianna Fáil, leader of Fianna Fáil, of course, and the Tornish, the Leo Bradgar, both spoke at this special uh, centenary commemoration. Michael Collins, of course, is a character of great fascination. And yesterday, in the Sunday Business Post, Dermot Ferriter, Professor of Modern History, Modern Irish History at uh, UCD, wrote a brilliant piece in the Business Post about Michael Collins. It was properly rigorous, it was factual, and he joins us now to discuss a man about whom much is written, but uh, a lot of it is myth and not useful. Dimit, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, congratulations on the piece. It is a remarkable piece because it is fair. Uh, you talk about his courage and his hard work, and indeed, in, in in many respects, it's very fair, but it's also very rigorous, and it deals with the myths that have mm. grown around Michael Collins over the years. Can I ask you first about, and there's a wonderful line in it, uh, you have uh, a line, uh, a leading IRA man in Cork, Tom Barry, who criticized Collins privately as having, quote, Never shot a man in his life, <laughs> which is really very funny. But I can just, I can, you can hear it. But they it, can be very bitchy in Cork, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the, the point, I suppose, which you also elaborate on, is that he was an administrator, yeah. rather than being a soldier. I, th- I think one of the one of the challenges I think, I mean, particularly with the one hundredth anniversary, is cutting to the adulation. And the point I'm making, this is not about denigrating Collins, but it's about the historian saying, what does the evidence reveal about Collins? And to what extent can we cut through the the myth and the blather and the bravado that you often hear at at, at Bail Law 
And it is about trying to follow the documentary evidence. And there's plenty of it. And an awful lot of that documentation relates to Collins, the administrator. And his more recent biographers have focused quite a lot on Collins at the desk. He spent most of his time at the desk. Yes. He was a great man for firing off admonishments and letters. He often felt that his colleagues were too sloppy. They weren't as efficient as he wanted them to be. Another line I've often used is, comes from his correspondence with Eamon de Valera. And de Valera said to him during the War of Independence in a letter, the Almighty did not give everyone the ordered mind he gave you, Michael. Yes. And that was a response to Collins again complaining bitterly that not enough was being done to follow his orders. So an awful lot of, of the Collins uh, modus operandi is, is, is based on being the effective administrator. And yes, he is making crucial decisions. And obviously he had that very important role as director of intelligence for the IRA. Um, but an awful lot of his correspondence is based on trying to coordinate. And that's a huge challenge, not just in relation to the War of Independence, but later in relation to the Civil War. I was looking at his diaries there recently, which have been digitized. These are the appointment diaries uh, for the last couple of months. Uh, of his life in particular I was focusing on. And it's all about the meetings he was having in relation to military strategy, in relation to recovering funds that had been stolen by the anti-treaty Republicans. He had a particular preoccupation with mattresses and uniforms, and again, the yes. efficiency of the soldiers and that. So again, it is, like he's, he, he's a details man. And yes. even when he was in charge of finance and minister for finance, he's all over that. And by extension, he's over other government ministers and government departments as well, because as far as he's concerned, Everything has to be verified and documented. There has to be a trail uh, yes. that can be followed, that can be understood. So he has a very ordered mind. Part of it, of course, is his training as a civil servant, as is well known. He spent time in, in London as a young man. Um, and he would have, I suppose, absorbed that attention to detail and that need for probity in relation to administrative matters. Now, he was 31 when he died uh, when he was assassinated, um, there is mythology around everything, including uh, his death, but we'll come mm. to that. At the age of 31, how and why was he sent to negotiate with the British? What, what was it that thing you've just referred to, his rigor and his attention to detail, his understanding of the importance of detail. Was it that element in his character or was it credibility that had built up around him? Were there myths around yeah. him even when he was alive, even before he died? Oh, absolutely. There were myths around him. And this was partly, of course, because he wasn't caught. You know, yes. he was the Scarlet Pimpernel. You know, they couldn't pin him down. There was a price on his head. He always had managed to evade capture or arrest so there's that sense of him. There's also that idea which comes up in the treaty debates. It's a tribute that is paid to him by Arthur Griffith that he was the man who won the war, you know. And, you know, so th those myths are building up, obviously, during uh, that War of Independence and post-War of Independence period. Part of the reason he went to London to negotiate the treaty was because he wanted to be there. And yes. I think this is sometimes misunderstood because there is a narrative that de Valera sent him over to bring back the bad news that de Valera didn't want to bring back himself. Yes. And there's an element of truth in that, of course. But there's also the question of Collins. Consider Collins, who was Minister for Finance, who was Director of Intelligence for the IRA, who was President of the Supreme Council of the Clandestine Irish Republican Brotherhood. Why wouldn't somebody who held all those roles have wanted to be a part of the solution? 
Yes. So the idea that he was dragged kicking and screaming to London uh, is an exaggeration. Of course he had his reservations, and of course he was concerned that the compromise was actually in accepting the invitation and that he would get the flack, perhaps, for not bringing back the Republic, which wasn't obtainable anyway. But he also wanted to be involved because he was a key player in the Irish Republican movement. Another reason he was sent was because Griffith, who was heading this delegation, uh, the older Griffith, the, the more moderate Griffith, and the way de Valera put it, he wanted a well-balanced team. And given the contacts and the networks that Collins had and had access to, uh, and the standing that he had within the Republican movement, it was important for the different strands within Sinn Féin and within the IRA to be represented. Um, so that's another one of the reasons. But Collins certainly had a sizable ego, as many successful uh, politicians do, um, so the idea that he would have been on the sidelines while all of this was being negotiated, I think he would have found that even more difficult. Now, what effect did London have on it? He got very close, as I understand it, to uh, the people he was negotiating with. He, it seemed, was the toast of the town. The ladies liked him. He liked London. It was a vibrant, exciting mm. center of the world, really. Did he become very fond of it? And uh, was he as it were, taken up by fashionable London? No, only to a point. Uh, I mean, you know, London was obviously a huge um, pressure zone for the negotiators at that time. I mean, there was a social element, of course, to the uh, trip to London. And Collins was familiar with London because of his earlier life. Um, but, you know, there are also at many stages in a bubble, in a very intense bubble. There's disagreements and tensions emerging in relation to the, the the Irish delegation. Collins actually stays separately to the rest of the delegation because of his stature and because of concerns yes. about security and that. So there is a bit of a, uh, I think, a psychological uh, as well as physical distance there. Um, but there were parties, you know, there were drinks to be had. Uh, there was the Collins mania that I referred to. Yes, uh, which, you referred which, to that in this piece you wrote in yesterday's Business Post. Yeah, well, I mean... Again, like, think about this. Like, Collins suddenly was, was public. Uh, you know, we talked earlier on about the clandestine Collins and, and the man who evaded capture. Here he was in London and he was the toast of society. He had the whiff of sulfur, of course, often. Yes. People like Lady Lavery and those who were moving in society circles wanted to be in his company. There was a glamour to it. He was becoming very, very famous. Um, and some of his opponents, you know, after the signing of the treaty later suggested that they had been seduced by British hospitality and had lost the run of themselves. I mean, that's exaggerated too. Uh, but there is a sense that comes through that there's now a Dublin Sinn Féin and a London Sinn Féin. In other words, things are happening in London. That De Valera yes. wanted to keep tabs on what was happening in London. De Valera really wanted to be part of the delegation whilst remaining in Dublin. And that wasn't sustainable. And there's growing tension between London Sinn Féin and Dublin Sinn Féin. And as Griffith and Collins would have seen it, look, we're here in the hot seat. We're ultimately going to have to make decisions and take responsibility for those decisions. We can't be relying on others directing us from a distance. And they become very resentful about that. But Collins was very famous. And there are striking photographs of people kneeling outside Downing Street um, in the summer of 1921, in advance of, of, of negotiations, there's all the press and photographers' interest uh, yes. in, in, in Collins. That was bound to have had an impact on him, not just in relation to how he saw himself, but also in relation to how others saw him. Because there was pride in the idea that Collins was such an international figure now yes. and famous, but it also generated resentment. Had it gone to his head, there were those at home in the IRA who felt that they were not being kept abreast of these crucial developments. And for all of the focus on Collins's, you know, supposed steely grip on the IRA, the reality was he didn't 
control the IRA. No one person controlled the IRA. There's a line that's what good enough for Mick is good enough for me. But that only took him so far. The overwhelming yes. majority of IRA members were opposed uh, to the treaty. And he was never going to have enough influence to try and bring enough of them around to his way of thinking. Now, you refer to his courage in the piece you wrote for the Business Post. Uh, you debunk much of the mythology and it's enormously valuable to someone like me coming from someone of your distinction that that mythology is debunked. And, it, and, and, and I mean, it starts at the very beginning because, you know, th there was this idea put out there by the National Army that his last words were, forgive them. Yes. And so, so it starts at that stage that, you know, the ultimate in self-sacrifice, not only was he fallen for Ireland for the cause, but that he also forgave that those who uh, were responsible for his death. That was a myth. You yes. also then have, at his funeral, Richard Mulcahy, who takes over uh, as Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, he actually says he was our hero and our legend, and his words were the words of a poet rather than a soldier at arms. Yeah. So you can see how they're already elevating him to another level. Yes. He becomes a secular saint, and of course that is, is amplified uh, at various stages. Now, another thing you debunk for lack of evidence is the idea that de Valera had and is said to have expressed, I think in a book written by Tim Pat Coogan, mm. um, which was very important coming uh, when it did in 1990. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a biography of Collins and he, de Valera says, it's my considered opinion that in the fullness of time, history will record the greatness of Collins. And it will be recorded at my expense. Now, you point out that there's no evidence that <laughs> De Valera ever yeah. said this. Although, yeah. it wouldn't be difficult to project it onto De Valera because well, I mean, it's, he it's may a, well have thought. Yeah, it's a great line and he yes. probably did think it. But this yes. is the crucial point. That is not something that De Valera would have said, would have admitted and whatever about what he might have uh, have thought of. Uh, now, you've got to consider, I, 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 no doubt that de Valera, I think, was mean-spirited in many ways uh, to the memory of Michael Collins, and there's a personal resentment and jealousy there, as well as great regret. And even de Valera is an older man, a very old man of the 60s. You know, he's going back to the 1921, 1922, 1923 period, re-examining, but in a very uh, self-righteous way, and a very defensive way, justifying the decisions that he, de Valera, had made. And that story that Michael, uh, that Tim Pat Coogan told, and it's also used in Neil Jordan's film. It comes yes. up at the end of, of, of the 1996 uh, film. And when you go looking for the source, you're told that Coogan was told it by a nephew of Collins. And that nephew had apparently heard it uh, from Joe McGrath, who was one of the contemporaries of, of, of Collins. And, and again, you know, it's all about uh, he said that, or they said that, or I heard this. It's not verifiable. It's not documented. And this brings us back to, you know, to where we started about what actually exists in relation to proof. That doesn't mean that some of these conversations, uh, you know, that are often referred to didn't happen. But, you know, we don't have a verifiable record of them. Yeah. And in your business as a historian, the evidence, the facts, are, are, are sacred. They are. And I mean, we're also well aware that not everything is documented. Not everything yes. is recorded. And even in relation to this day, 100 years ago, 
and the exchanges that occurred or what was said or who said what, uh, you know, even something simple uh, like what might have been said just before the ambush or during the ambush, uh, you know, in relation to what they should do. You know, you're not going to have them uh, documented no. uh, contemporaneously, you know. So, the, you know, they ideas build up afterwards and then you have memoirs and you have speculation and you have reflections. And I mean, they're all completely understandable. And I mean, I'm not dismissing them and I'm not cynical about it. Um, but we do have to try in, in so far as we can uh, to rely on on what we can stand over uh, as evidence, which again was, was why I found the diaries particularly interesting because um, at one stage he elaborates on the idea that he didn't want any humiliation of the anti-treaty Republicans. I mean, it was well known even before he was shot that they couldn't defeat the National Army and the Free State side. They didn't have the resources, yes. the popular support to do it. But what Collins was finding very frustrating uh, was the, the difficulty of trying to stamp them out. You know, if they weren't going to surrender, they'd have to be chased down. But And that's precisely, in, 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 in a way, uh, why Cork and the hinterland of Cork and where he died is so important. Yes. You know, they had retreated uh, to their Munster heartland. Yes. Very, very difficult to stamp them out. I mean, they were defeated uh, militarily in the bigger sense. You know, Cork had fallen, Limerick had fallen, Waterford had fallen, Dublin had fallen to the National Army side. And so it was about retreating to the hills and going back to a reliance on the guerrilla strategy. But that was always going to pre present a huge challenge to the National Army side. Uh, because how do you penetrate that deeply uh, into those strong pockets of resistance? And even for all the adulation around Collins in Cork, you're also dealing with an intense anti-treaty sentiment in Cork because that was the yes. first Southern Division, the largest division of the IRA. Uh, and you refer there to uh, Tom Barry and people like Liam DC and Liam Lynch. You know, they were not contemplating compromise. And no. for all of, of the respect uh, for Michael Collins, they hugely resented him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. To go back to the myth-making, this is Enda Kenny in 2006 talking about, quote, the brilliant West Cork boy, the military genius, and the one man revolution who made Ireland ungovernable, forcing the British Empire not just to a truce, but to its knees. That's I hear, Enda. I hear, as we say in my house. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I'm quoting from your piece because yeah. it's, it's, I mean, I really like Enda Kenny and admire yeah. him in many ways, but one can only imagine the, the sort of, the levels of hyperbole and, yeah, you know, and, and emotion. <laughs> no, 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 that's an important point, Eamon, about the emotion. Yeah. And again, I don't want to be cynical about this. You know, what happened 100 years ago gave rise to, to great emotion. And it's understandable. And there were many people who drank from the well of 1922 for decades afterwards in a very silent and sad way, most yes. of them. And it defined um, so many uh, of that generation. But this is what happens more you know, decades afterwards that you get this, this elevation, this idea of a one man revolution. There was no one man revolution. You cannot understand Collins unless you understand him through the wider revolution yes. and the people who were around him and the context. One of the things that annoys me most is the presentation of Michael Collins as a great feminist. And yes. I mean, as I point out, his views of women were firmly Edwardian. And why wouldn't they have been? That's the era that he was a product of, and he was a product of his time. He belongs to 1890 to 1922 yes. in the sense of trying to understand yes. him and his hinterland and his cultural and political and social influences. But what happens with something like the, the Kenny speech um, is that, you know, very complex and layered uh, historical situations become distorted and simplified, as in the idea of the one man revolution, or the idea that the British Empire had been brought to its knees. Well, no, I mean, the free state was a free state dominion within the British Empire. That's not quite the empire uh, at its knees. But of course, one of the arguments that could always be made about Collins was that his interpretation of the treaty was vindicated. And when we talk about the legacy of Collins 100 years on, his famous line about the treaty providing not freedom, but the freedom to achieve greater freedom, yes. or a stepping stone towards greater freedom, he was vindicated. He was, he was correct. Ironically and cruelly, it was Fianna Fáil, ultimately, who, who wielded enough power to be able to vindicate him, which of course created great difficulty uh, for, for the champions of, of Collins and th those who see themselves as uh, inheriting uh, his political legacy. But again, you know, we don't need to contrive to make him what he was not. He was interesting enough without that. Yes. Now, the, the other idea of him is of the lost leader, mm. that this was, uh, and you, you do point out in your piece something that I didn't know. There's lots of things I don't know, <laughs> but one of them was that Finnegale's claim to Collins is a bit absurd because Finnegale wasn't founded until 10 or 11 years after Collins died in 1922. Well, there's an awful lot of selectivity around that. Yeah. I thought, I'd always thought until I read your piece yesterday that he was Finnegale's man. He was Sinn Fein, and he died in advance of the formation of Cumnangrail and, of course, later Finnegale. And isn't it interesting that, you know, when you look, for example, at the Finnegale website, 
uh, and you go looking at the historical section, you're not going to find Ono Duffy featuring very prominently, no. even though Ono <laughs> Duffy was right at the heart uh, yeah. of, of the formative period of, of Fine Gael. So it is about being selective. It's also about latching him on to later developments. And as I said, you know, he belongs to that span 1890 to 1922. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're talking about those who would claim uh, an inheritance. But it is partly about the lost leader. The lost leader is a very attractive proposition. Yes. Because Collins becomes a blank canvas onto which you can paint whatever colours you want, whatever inheritance you want. You can mould him to fit whatever shape you need at a particular time. And Fine Gael needed Collins. They needed Collins for all sorts of different reasons, which was about emphasising their impeccable revolutionary credentials and their origin story and the idea that Fianna Fáil would claim a monopoly on that Republican spirit, they would rubbish that by saying, look at what Michael Collins did and the sacrifices that Collins made. I just want to refer to another uh, gem from the piece you wrote uh, in the Business Post. Uh, Jerry O'Connell is the vice president of Fine Gael in 2004. And Jerry believed that they had a man in Collins who would find common ground with the first-time house buyers, the young married couple that had the ground swept from under them under a barrage of stealth tax and rip-off practices. <laughs> and it's wonderful. <laughs> he, he, he attributes these notions to Collins. Now, we've yeah. had a conversation before about Collins, and I was under my usual set of delusions I thought this is a great man, the lost leader, who would preserve justice uh, yeah. and, and yeah. dis dispense it. Uh, but that is a very good example in Jerry O'Connell, only a few years ago. Oh, it is. And what you also get, of course, is the idea of the lost leader, of course, has a lot of credibility in the sense that he did die very young. He had the makings of a very effective leader. But we've yes. also got to consider that he was only 31 and there was an yes. immaturity uh, to Collins in some respects. Like when we talk about ideology and his great visions uh, for Ireland, which are really sometimes ramped up to a farcical level uh, uh, by some of his current champions, consider the collected speeches and thoughts and ideas of Collins, which is published in 1922. It's a very slim volume. And again, yes. why wouldn't it be a slim volume, uh, given that he hadn't really developed uh, his ideas to, to any huge extent. But what you're dealing with really is somebody who was formed by a 19th century concept of Irish nationalism, and it's a romantic uh, concept of Irish nationalism. Yes. And he, again, he, he's a product of that. Some of the speeches in there are not that far off. David Ayer's speeches in the 1930s and 40s when he was looking back at the Ireland that we would dream of. And like there's an idealization of the West of Ireland. Collins yes. writes or talks about the, the peasant women on Ackle Island coming down um, to collect turf from the sand, uh, from the seashore on their ponies. And we get an idea of what Ireland can become again, he says. You know, so, yes. uh, you know, it's a very 19th century romanticized version of Irish nationalism. And again, he was a product of that era. He would have brought perhaps uh, a particular efficiency, you could argue, to certain of the challenges that faced uh, the free state. But Collins' legacy is always going to be wrapped up in these what-ifs. And we can't answer them. We can speculate, of course, even in relation to, to really difficult matters in 1922 later on about executions. Would he have tolerated the execution of anti-treaty Republicans, the illegal execution of anti-treaty Republicans? Uh, and again, we can only speculate about that. But it is revealing that after his death, his colleagues very quickly moved to close off the window 
for violence in Northern Ireland, that Collins was speaking out of both sides of his mouth in relation to talking peace, but authorising the IRA in early 1922 to make excursions into Northern Ireland to destabilise the new state. After he dies, his colleagues quickly reversed that policy. So there were tensions in 1922, and there was a concern maybe that Collins had too much power because you had, of course, the proroguing of Parliament doesn't meet until September after he dies. Uh, you have the death of Arthur Griffith. Um, so, you know, there are tensions about just how much power Collins has and should have in relation to the military and political roles. And are the lines too blurred between the political and military world in, in 1922? Perhaps there's inevitability around them being blurred. But how sustainable was that subsequently? Right. Just a couple of more questions to ask you, Dermot. One of them is about yesterday and the presence uh, of the leader of Fianna Fáil and the leader of Fine Gael, uh, both of whom spoke at Bernard Law. The other is about uh, the circumstances of his assassination and his death. And uh, You write the reality of the circumstances of his death. He had imbibed Porter, made a foolish military blunder by stopping to return fire on his ambushers and then did not take proper cover. So that was an act of recklessness, you're suggesting. Well, um, we're all experts now, aren't we? Uh, and I'm well, conscious. He, I'm, not, I'm, I'm conscious that it's very easy to look back because we know now um, the, you know, the sequence of events that day and you have to wonder why they chose to travel back that road anyway. All of yes. these questions uh, arise. You referred earlier on to assertions of his military genius. These were not the tactics of a, a military genius. But yeah. at the same time, there were other factors at work. You know, if people have been drinking, and I'm not suggesting they were on the complete piss, no. um, but it does cloud your judgment, even a moderate amount. Yes. Uh, and that was reckless. Collins is surrounded by people who are admiring him. You know, that famous last photograph of, of him leaving yes. the hotel. You know, you can see the crowd around him and he is a celebrity and he is amongst his own uh, as, as he sees it. Uh, but clearly, you know, the judgment was compromised there. Uh, and, in, you know, in relation then, of course, you could argue that, well, they weren't in a position to speed on. Uh, because of the nature of the terrain and the road and the barricade yes. and so on. So, I, you know, that, that can, of course, military historians could, could have different perspectives on that, but certainly not taking adequate cover. Uh, and again, you know, Collins made a mistake. Uh, so, you know, we don't have to, um, we don't have to admonish him uh, for the mistakes he made. No. But clearly there were basic errors that were made in relation to their vulnerability. Let me ask you a final question about the significance of the leaders of Fianna Fáil, uh, Michal Martin, and uh, the leader of Fine Gael, Leo Varadkar. These are the civil war parties. Ireland has paid a price, many feel, in terms of its politics for that division between those two parties, uh, which to many young people today would seem an artificial almost mm. uh, division. What the hell is it going to do with now? might be people's view. Can we take some encouragement from the fact that they were both there, they were both speaking, they were both celebrating and remembering Collins? I think the big challenge is what happens after, because the inevitable question that will arise from yesterday is, well, what's keeping you apart now? Exactly. After and it's been years, asked many times, hasn't it? it? Has. In recent I mean, times. I mean, I've been hearing that question for a long time, and I've been hearing about the demise of civil war politics for a long time. It is formally over now. 
given the sharing yes. of power. But the challenge for both parties, of course, is how they retain a distinctive identity. If it's accepted now that civil war politics is over, uh, and you know, if you look at that wider uh, question over the decades of what really separated them, you know, what is stopping them uh, merging now? Does it make a merger more likely? And of course, they've been getting in their barbs at Sinn Féin. And that's the other thing about the 100th anniversary. Yes. They are using the opportunity of these commemorative events um, to criticize Sinn Féin. Um, yes. And of course, that is is part of our contemporary political debate. And the idea that was emphasized by Michal Martin that we kind of represent this centrist sentiment now, which they do in many respects. But that, of course, allows Sinn Féin to present itself as a radical alternative, which suits their political agenda. They're not particularly yes. interested in commemorating uh, uh, Michael Collins. Um, so, you know, they'll let the two big war, uh, bigger parties at it. Uh, but they're not bigger, <laughs> according to the uh, the current opinion polls. So they're happy to let them uh, indulge in their commemoration of Collins, knowing that in some respects it's actually going to emphasise their limitations, the limitation uh, limitations of the civil war parties. Because how do they carve out a different alternative space uh, for themselves if 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 they've accepted that there really is no major difference between them anymore? Okay, Dermot, um, I have to congratulate you again on a brilliant piece uh, in Thanks the much, Sunday man. Business Post magazine that helped me immensely to understand Collins as a human being, uh, as well as a soldier, a bureaucrat, and to some extent a, a statesman. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. That's Dermot Ferreter, uh, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, and uh, that very rare thing, an academic who can write brilliantly. We're grateful to Dermot, grateful to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.